0: And welcome to the 34th. What we need to do to deal with this grotesque level of income and wealth inequality is make sure that those people who are working, you know what, Mr. Bloomberg, wasn't you who made all that money. Maybe your workers played some role in that as well.
1: And it is important workers are able to share the benefits
0: also when we have so many people who go to work every day and they feel not good about their jobs. They feel like cogs in a machine. I want workers to be able to sit on corporate boards as well, so they can have some say
1: over what happens to their lives. Mayor Bloomberg, you own a large company. Would you support what Senator Sanders is proposing? Absolutely not. I can't think of a ways that would make it easier for Donald Trump to get reelected than listening to this conversation. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Throw out capitalism. We tried that. Other countries tried that. It was called communism and it just didn't work.
0: So there was Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of uh, New York City, uh, going after Bernie Sanders. Um, Richard Wolf, you describe yourself as a socialist economist. Um, respond to what both Paul Krugman says and what Bloomberg is saying here.
1: Sure. There is no agency, neither public nor private, that defines what a socialist is. If you follow the socialist movement for the last 150 years, you would discover that it has been a contested terrain from day one. There were different interpretations and different meanings. Bernie Sanders is perfectly in line with one of the traditions of what socialism is. It's the government having a big role in offsetting some of the awful qualities of capitalism. But we also know that the kind of control that the government tries to operate is very difficult for it to succeed with. We once had a New Deal in this country. We lost most of it because we didn't go beyond a government intervention to change the society. What Bernie Sanders represents is an awareness that it's time to have a conversation we should have had for 75 years about our capitalist system and whether we can do better. This is now a changed environment in which what was taboo in this country isn't anymore. And Bernie has already achieved the breaking of a taboo in this country to talk about socialism, its strengths and weaknesses, its different interpretations, and compare them to capitalism, rather than running away because nasty conservatives call us various names. That's not a profound reason. And for the young people of this country, it doesn't carry much weight anyway. So I welcome the opening that Bernie achieves that we can talk about socialism. different interpretations, and why we ought to explore them a lot more than we've been able to under the taboo of the last 75 years.
0: Okay. Today, my guest on the, sh- on the show is Dr. Asitar Baer. He has a PhD in political economy and wrote this interesting book on prison labor and economics. Welcome, Dr. Baer.
2: Thank you. Well, I'm glad to be here.
0: Absolutely. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about is we're sort of having a revival of discussion as far as communism is concerned, what communism is defined as, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and how that sort of juxtaposes against capitalism. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts on what you thought were the main differences or the main misconceptions Americans have of the differences in regards to the two uh, types of political economy.
2: That's a great question. You know the the my first thought on it is that uh, notions about communism as being uh, an enlightened kind of society as being a good society are very very old. Uh, you know, communism uh, is become associated with Marxism because of course uh, Marx and Engels and the Marxist tradition had a lot to say about it, but. Uh, It's far, far older than that. I mean, you know, Thomas More describes, uh, you know, in Utopia, right, written in in the 1500s, describes basically a society, you know, a classless society where, you know, wealth is distributed on the basis of need. And, uh, you know, the early Christians, uh, you know, had, you know, similar uh, types of vision for their communities. Um, So it's a very, very old idea uh, and a very idealistic idea. Um, uh, what Marxism added to it was to say that communism will abolish exploitation. And, uh, by exploitation, it's meant the taking of, of the products of surplus labor that, that is, you know, the individual produces right for themselves enough for themselves by whatever standards are socially constructed, you know, whatever the producer needs. And then they produce above and beyond that, that surplus labor and the central question in marxism is well who takes that surplus labor who owns it who gets to control what happens to it right so so you know the marxists say well it's it is simply unethical and, and it's immoral to have somebody take it who did not produce it and you know that is however very very common i mean that's the basis of of society really of civilization as far back as we have history and so you know, Marx and Engels' famous statement uh, that, you know, the the existing history is a history of class struggle, right? Meaning a struggle over the surplus. So, you know, a a very old idea, but, you know, one that's been given a particular spin, right? To say, we're going to abolish exploitation. And that's something that kind of has to happen first. Now, what would that society look like? We actually have no idea, right? Because there is no society that we can point to, right? That's I mean, right. we yes. have we have scattered examples. I mean, you know, what do we know about how these early Christians lived? You know, the Essenes, right? Do, do, what do we know about their communitarianism? Uh, well, actually, very little, right? Uh, and of what we know, how much of it does it apply to you know a modern industrialized society? Well, like nothing, right? I mean, so you know, we're we're it's like you pursuing a, a a distant land that you think exists. Uh, and it's kind of a dream, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but dreams are important, right? Because that gives you a sense of direction. You know, like what does a good society look like? And so, you know, the the Marxist tradition says, well, it's it's based on sharing. It's based on cooperation. I mean, this is not a society that would that would if if we had the ability to prevent it, we would never ever allow somebody to starve to death. To to go without medical care when when you know that, when that's available, right? To the extent that we had the wealth, the ability to take care of everyone, of mm-hmm. course we would do so, right? I mean that's what that's what sharing and cooperation is, right? So that's a very appealing vision. It's like saying, well, could we could we have a, a large scale society uh, that that operates more like a family, right? I mean, it's it's inconceivable within a family to say. Well, listen, uh, you're going to have to starve because, you know, though we do have enough, you know, you didn't quite work hard enough and so you, now you die. I mean, that would be insane, right? Except yeah. that is, that basically is the basis of modern society. And this is why 9 million people globally starve to death each year despite a global food surplus. So, I mean, you know, we are, we are kind and loving to, to each other in small groups. But we are absolutely brutal to each other uh, on a large scale, and I think that's the dream of communism that we could that we could close that circle, and you know treat each other in a you know benevolent manner, and in a manner that doesn't leave anybody out, in which there's no one on top oppressing those on the bottom, and you know so I, I think like when we talk in this manner. I'm not going to see, there's not going to be a lot of people that are going to disagree with me, right? There's not going to be a lot of people that are going to be like, no, damn it. I think people should starve. Right. I mean, because that's, you know, that's crazy. And, and I think, you know, okay, if we stay on this level, all right, no, no disagreements. But then if we say, well, okay, what practical steps would we need to take in order to get to that point? All right, well, now we're going to start having some disagreements. Right. Um, And so, you know, the, 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 the Marxist tradition actually has a lot to say about this too, right? Because, you know, one of the most famous uh, documents ever written, of course, is the Communist Manifesto, right? And the Communist Manifesto says, you know, you know, a, a specter is haunting Europe, stuff like this, right? So right. specter of communism and, you know, what is that? And, you know, goes into, you know, okay, here's the history of feudalism and its brutal exploitation. And then it gives way to this new... Kind of exploitation. What is this? And it's different. And how do we understand that? And, and, uh, you know, what harm is it causing? And, you know, all of this, right? And, and uh, what should we do to try to mitigate that harm, you know, and discuss as well, okay, here's efforts to reform uh, the brutal excesses of capitalism and, uh, you know, why that's not adequate, right? I mean, they're they're like, well, this basically won't work. Um, Right which I think has been very much vindicated in the 150 years since because, you know, have the the various reforms of capitalism been able to, you know, just about, I mean, if we just talk about the one concrete one that I mentioned, right? People starving Mm -hmm. to death. I mean, that's a pretty bad one though, right? I mean, imagine if we eliminated that from the human experience. I mean, what a, you know, what a liberation that would be, right? I mean, Mm given that you know for the million or so years that humans have been around uh starvation has been pretty much the central issue right i mean just getting enough calories i mean you know if we look in the the grand sweep of history but that's not the central issue now right i mean we right. produce yeah. enough food
0: yeah it's false so, scarcity
2: yeah it's a false scarcity exactly why should we why should we permit that and so you know of course their their solution is well look the workers need to seize the means of production the, the we should not allow uh, a few people to own what is really the property of all i mean you know land why should why should land be owned by a few and if it is owned by a few are they not going to become fantastically wealthy yes right all all available history says yes absolutely right uh, and what about factories what about right. you know equipment infrastructure well Yes. Right. I mean, that's so the very first thing we need to do is to is to rearrange that right to to have that owned by the government. Now, here's where we start getting into things that are contentious. Right. Um, Very quickly, because, uh, you know, that I mean, any attempt to change the existing distribution of property.
0: it's, can I ask you a question? Um, can you explain for the audience, because I understand what you're saying, you're saying here perfectly well, but I think there's a lot of confusion with the general population on the differences between private property and personal property. What you're talking about here is private property, which is not the same as personal property. And I think I think that's where it gets a little bit awry for some Americans, because they think you're going to eliminate you even having a dwelling to live in which is not the case so if you can get a little bit of the details of those differences I think it would be helpful for folks
2: that's true very good point um you know I mean this is like the the, the thing everyone says like oh I'm, I'm not going to get to have a toothbrush uh what about my <laughs> toothbrush I mean do I everyone has to share a toothbrush of course right that's what socialism is and you know I mean Marx and Engels do talk about this in the manifesto which yeah. I, I'm aware not everyone has read and you know uh you know you know, that's like, well, okay, look, the, the stuff that you have, you know, that you think of as your property is pretty insignificant in the grand scheme of things, right? I mean, like, okay, yes, it matters to you, your clothing, your bed, your house even, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's not the stuff we're talking about. That no, stuff doesn't produce other wealth, right? I mean, and that, and you, you know this for yourself, right? If, if it was capable of producing wealth, you wouldn't have to go to work every day, right? I mean, <laughs> the, the reason you have to is because you don't have enough wealth to sustain yourself, right? To right. produce all the stuff that you need or an income, which will buy all the things that you need, right? So that's not the stuff we're talking about, right? We're talking about, you know, the Marxist phrases, means of production, the things that can be used to produce other things. And that is not, uh, should not, not be an privately answer. owned, exactly you know? Right. That's, that, that's the Marxist argument, not, you know, look, a personal property, of course, one should have that, right? That's you know, I, I don't want someone stealing my pants. I want them to be there when I wake up in the morning, right? <laughs> but that's, of course, not what we're talking about. I mean, unless pants are somehow now...
0: Right, but you've heard people make this argument, right? You've heard folks say, you know, they want to take everything that you... Eat, which is completely not true. So I just I just feel like there's so many misconceptions about what the theory is in and of itself. And, and I think this is one of the big ones right here.
2: Well, yes, absolutely, because... You know, I mean, we've been subjected to decades of propaganda yes, over this. I mean, exactly,
0: exactly. It is, it's propaganda. Look, Americans have been told all of these things that that not only is it we're, they're going to confiscate all your wealth, all of your material goods that you own, like all of the, and but the but also that it's authoritarian in its nature versus actually having the democracy on the means of production. I think the problem is is that the plutonomy is very threatened by these concepts because it disallows them to keep exploiting the labor. So they've been able to convince the labor, particularly in the United States, more so than other countries, I think that being anti-communism is an American ideal because capitalism is, is the, the, um, egalitarian principle of freedom, which is not true. It's never been true, but they're brainwashed to believe this. Right.
2: Yeah. I mean, um, You know, we—it's kind of like um, we're told very flattering things. You know, like like each one of us is an individual, and yeah, look at how special we are, and you know, we have all these opportunities, and you know, I I think there's some truth to that. But if we if we just look at it statistically, it's it's kind of like you said. Look, anyone can get to this mountaintop. You know, everyone has the opportunity, but only three percent of you will make it. Right. I mean that's actually like, okay, well, that's great. We could celebrate the opportunity, but the reality is pretty brutal. You know, I mean, the reality is, look, most people are never going to become rich. I mean, they never, and and, you know, yes, you have the opportunity, but again, you know, only three out of a hundred of you are going to make it to the point where you actually have control over your time. I mean, And that's, that's a really something to think about. Right. I mean, like maybe it's, maybe it's going to be you. Hey, I wish that for you. I hope so. Right. Um, but on the other hand, right, there's some connection between one person making it there and those that don't. Right. I mean, it's not like everyone's an independent actor here. Right. I mean, the, the way that you become rich is by taking the surplus labor that others have produced. I mean, and so then you are participating in them not making it. I mean, imagine that, right? It's like to make it to the mountaintop, you have to climb on the backs of, of right. others, right? Um, well, okay, that puts a different spin on it, right? I mean, we're not atomistic individuals. We are right. highly reliant on each other, so.
0: 100%, you know, it, which re, re, recalls to my mind, one of the arguments that Karl, Karl Marx is making is that really to achieve communism, you have to pass through capitalism, like like. There, you have to be a capitalist society before you can truly become an a communist one. And there might be some truth to that. I hadn't really bought whole hog into that concept previously, but see now that we've reached a point in this country where, you know, 80 to 84% of the new wealth created the last few, we- few years has gone to the 1%. This is not tenable. It's not sustainable. It's immoral. And... And the idea that nobody wants to save capitalism because everybody at the top is so greedy, they know that this is the metric, right? They see it. They know that the income inequality is severe. But they're not willing to do what it takes to correct it, right? So what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that is a necessary component? And is the United States going to be more open to ideas of socialism, in the very least, whether it's social democracies or some other more egalitarian concept? because they have suffered the extremes of capitalism. What are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, well, I think it's, it's a lot like what, you know, Marx and Engels said. They said, capitalism produces its own gravediggers and, you know, yeah. what, <laughs> <laughs> what radicalizes people, you know? What makes people think there might be a better way to organize society economically? Well, it's the brutal excesses of capitalism, of course, right? I mean, if, if capitalism was working well, Uh, then that probably wouldn't come up, right? But, you know, it works well for, I'm going to just say it works well for the top 10%, you know? Yeah. The top 10% live very different lives than the bottom 90%. Um, And, but, you know, the top 10% includes pretty much everyone we see on the media. I'm just going to leave out alternative media here, uh, such as yourself, because I mean, this this is hardly a mainstream channel here. No. I mean, I wish you all the best and success of that. happening.
0: That's not going to happen because the things I discuss on here won't uphold the platonomy. So that's sort of where we're at. I actually worked through, I worked for a mainstream media company in the 90s. So I've seen a real degradation in where they're coming from. And it has everything to do with the influx of corporate cash because of the way we changed our laws, you know.
2: And the centralization of ownership of, yeah. you know, into a very few hands of, right. of all of the you know, I mean, it's like 95% of the media that reaches people is owned by like six corporations. I mean, it's, it's quite incredible. Um, and you know, they present a certain view of the world, which, which, you know, they believe in and, you know, benefits them and so forth. And, you know, so, so, okay. Capitalism works well for the top 10% or, and even better for the top 1% and even better for the top 0.1%. That's
0: right.
2: But, you know, for for those on the bottom, I mean, the reason why I have this 90 percent figure in mind is because for the bottom 90 percent of the American workforce, they have seen their their wages flat or declining for the last 40 years. And this is a pretty unusual pattern in the history of capitalism. I mean, the, the history of capitalism, as far as we know, is that wages and productivity tend to pretty much move together. And they have totally diverged uh, in the last 40 or 50 years. And that's just remarkable. I mean, productivity is continuing to rise and wages are either flat or declining. And I mean, it's just a, it's a unique period in American history. And I think it's, it's brought up all kinds of tensions and contradictions. And the pandemic has certainly accelerated those because, you know, now we're seeing firsthand, okay, we have this deadly plague uh, and, you know, who gets taken care of in this, right? I mean, who gets the best medical treatment and who goes without, you know? And, and you know, this is a, a time, I mean, the pandemic shows us, look, we are all connected here, you know? And, and the risk for one cannot really be separated uh, from the risk to all, you know? I mean, that's the thing about infectious disease, right? I mean, the, the best situation for the very rich is to eliminate, the pandemic, right? I mean, the same as it is for the very poor. But that's not the way that we're handling it, right? That's not the way our policy is geared. Uh, So I think that that, you know, that, and the fact that rents have been, you know, going up much faster than, than wages, I think all of these things are radicalizing for people. All of these things lead, especially the young, I mean, the young are, I mean, you know, they, they suffer for a lot of this, right? Because they have, don't have established careers. I mean, unless they, unless they come from wealth, right? Uh, they don't have established careers. And, you know, by and large, right, uh, even if you do, you know, have a good degree and have parents that are able to pay for that, and whatever, when you enter the capitalist marketplace and face the challenges of, you know, relatively low entry-level pay, even with a good college degree, combined with very high rent and cost of living, you know, in an urban area where the good jobs are concentrated. Right. uh, I mean, you're not going to be a fan of capitalism by and large. Right. I mean, so I think there is a new openness to it. Uh, You know, the rise of of Bernie. We have politicians now that are openly saying, I'm a democratic socialist. Right. I personally don't think that the word democratic is necessary. Yeah.
0: (laughs) It, it shouldn't be, but it is because people have so many misconceptions, right? It's, it's, again, it's that thing that they've been told that it's authoritarian when it's not.
2: Well, let's address that because, yeah, yeah that is- I let's address that. I think, quite, I
0: think it's the big, I think it's the big elephant in the room, you know?
2: Yeah. Um, I dislike that term because, to me, I, I think, you know, there's all kinds of use. We have to get more. We have to disaggregate it, right? We have to say- what is the use of authority that is happening right now? To what end is it is authority being exercised authority or power. That's just a fact of life, right? I mean, the question is, how is it being used, right? Is it being used in a way that is truly for the greater good or, or for the interests of a few, right? Is it, is it something that is transparent? Is it accountable? Right. I mean, and, You know, mostly the answer in the United States is no, not really. I mean, we have very (laughs) limited accountability. (laughs) Yeah, like you don't like something your representative is doing or the president is doing or whatever. I mean, the president is basically a, in the United States, is a dictator with a four-year term. I mean, the amount of power that the president has is, is very high, right? I mean,
0: And it's increased the last decade.
2: Yeah, and you can vote to end that, but what can, what do you have to say during their term? I mean, nothing really, right? I mean, so uh, I, I just think the idea that, a th- that, that, a th- that there's something called authoritarian and then something else called freedom or something or libertarian yeah. or something. I mean, to me, that is just.
0: It's the wrong question. A yeah, way yeah. of
2: thinking, yeah. So I, I don't like the term. I, I think like, well, let's look at what the actual policies are let's look at what the results are. You know, I mean, I'm a big fan of, of gauging those results on a couple of criteria, right? Like if we want to talk about policy, we should talk about, well, and and especially if it is, if there's a claim that's being made that it's helping people, well, okay. What the hell does that mean? Right? Like helping people. I mean, almost any policy is going to help somebody. Right.
0: Right. <laughs> right. No, gosh, you yeah, know, and so you're sort of reminding me of um, the argument John Rawls makes about whether something benefits more people, less people, and doesn't harm anybody else in the process of doing that. That's sort of a utilitarian argument. That's what that reminds me of.
2: There's a lot to that, and you know we have statistics which can help us with this, right? I mean, yeah, one hundred percent. You know, we we could look at you know if we want to just know like are these policies uh, increasing well-being well. You know, there's easy ways of doing that, right? I mean, we could look at things like homelessness, we could look at deprivation, you know, we could look at poverty, we could look at things like infant mortality, Um, we could look at healthcare, uh, we can look at quality of life, we can look at life expectancy. Um, And these are all like well established social science statistics. And the reality is, when you look at those statistics and you consider the record of socialism, it's very, very strong because, I mean, socialist societies focus tremendously on these measures. You know, they recognize that infant mortality is an awful, appalling tragedy. I mean, for even one infant to die, I mean, that's that's a life-changing tragedy for somebody, right? For an entire family. We should absolutely minimize that as far as we possibly can, right? And so, you know, and how do we do that, right? Well, we we make it possible for everybody to see a doctor who needs one, right? We we make sure that there's hospitals, that there's you know a healthcare system. We, um, so you know, I mean, I could go on and on, right? That's just one example, right? But we yeah. could talk about workplace safety. We could talk about pensions. You know, do are are, do, are people having to work until, you know, they're deep into their elder years uh, because there's no alternative, or you know, it, it, does the society provide right, right, right. for that, right? So by those like large scale macro measures uh the social societies do incredibly well and i think that that speaks to the question of like is it true you know i mean like anybody can claim like hey we're doing this for the benefit of the people well that's a testable claim you know like i mean pretty and first of all everyone says that right i mean (laughs) so every government likes to make that claim but is it true right i mean uh that's, it's a testable claim. So we should actually test it. But, you know, our, our way of looking at societies is so undeveloped. Uh, it, you know, we, it's like we stop with the propaganda and say, oh, well, th- those people aren't free. It's an authoritarian society. Well, yeah. it's meaningless.
0: Yeah, we're less free here than some of these other countries in many regards. This is absolutely true. I, I don't know. Are you familiar? i um, just reminding me of something I from my uh, school days, a uh, Danziger book on inter- international relationships. I went to UC Irvine and he was a professor there, and he wrote uh, a book that I think is pretty well used in other uh, schools as well. But I remember being uh, at the age of whatever, 25, 26, being really motivated by one of the things that he mentioned in that book, which was that FDR, even though FDR was uh, enacting socialist policy and it was definitely socialist that his administration had and he had all of the backup paperwork to this obviously the um, letters etc but that they chose to call this liberal policy even though it wasn't really liberal because they were very concerned that socialism had um, such a a, a bad connotation in the american public because of the way it had been weaponized for decades the propaganda etc that they chose to use liberal instead and, I, you know, in some ways, I understand that argument. If, if we use, say, that we're enacting socialism, we won't win re-election, people won't support the policy. I understand why those fears were real. But part of me always thought, you know, that kind of did a disservice to the American public in the sense that it sort of perpetuated the weaponization of socialism, right? As socialism being bad when it's not. What are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, it's kind of interesting. I mean, you know, so the term socialism, I mean, a lot of these terms are so contested. They, they're used in so many different ways that it's almost like we're speaking different languages, you know? Yeah. Um, like, it's like, what do you mean by <laughs> communism? You know, what do you mean by socialism? A lot of times those are used interchangeably, um, you know, and, and it's never just, it's never even bothered to uh, define them, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, I've offered a, a certain definition that I, you know, I say, look, there's a long history of the term communism, right, to mean a classless society, there isn't, there isn't rich and poor. And then, again, the Marxist added this idea. Well, there also isn't exploitation. I mean, you know, like in the, in the book I mentioned, right, Moore's Utopia, they actually had slavery, right? I mean, that's, that's pretty right. crazy. I mean, that doesn't, you know, so the Marxists really did add something, right? They said, there's not gonna be slavery under communism, right? There's not gonna be a group of people who live off the labor of somebody else who are enslaved, who, who are in chains, even if those chains mm-hmm. are made of gold uh, as they were in, in, that, in that famous uh, novel. Mm-hmm. Um, so, well then what is socialism? I mean, we have to kind of get into that, right? So mm-hmm. the Marxist notion is, look, because, because all that we know is societies based on exploitation, there's going to be some kind of process that we're going to have to go through yes. in order to actually to get there, right? I mean, we have yeah. to actually develop the economy, you know, so the, the, the point that you brought up earlier, do we, do we need capitalism first? Uh, well, I mean, maybe we don't need capitalism per se, but we need industrialization. We need, ah, to, we need a to develop point. the economy. You know, does it need to take place through a, a small group of people uh, brutally exploiting the masses? No, that does not need to happen. But okay. I mean, that's the way it's happened historically. But we could maybe break with that, right? We could, we could. Let's say, okay, the workers have seized the means of production, right? The land and the factories and all the things that used to produce wealth. Uh, and they, they. they pr- there's only one employer in the society. I mean, what would you, what would you call that, right? And that one employer um,
0: is. Oh, I was going to answer your question. That's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm a student in your class right now. I would just say, I would say really it's, it's the democracy owning the means of production. Like the idea I think of co-ops, worker owned co-ops, et cetera. I think these are just super basic socialist ideas that are imp- already implemented in the real world in some areas. Not obviously to the extent of the entire country, but, but we already see, we already see the beginnings of that, I guess is what I'm saying.
2: Yeah, there are worker co-ops and that's a, that's a good instance. I mean, so you know, whether we say something is is you know communist or communal on the macro level versus whether we say it's communist or communal on the micro level, I mean those that's a different scale, right? I mean, so yeah. there may be micro level instances of communism of of workers actually appropriating the surplus that they produce, and there are right I mean we yeah. we do have but it's a pretty small. Uh, minority. I mean, you know, capitalism is not set up to, you know, it's harder to start a business with 20 people, let's say, than it is right. with, with one or two, right? So, indeed, you know, I mean, culturally, but also legally, I mean, just in terms yeah. of getting a loan, all of these things. And so these are things which, you know, the more, the higher you set the bar, the fewer are going to get over it, right? right? So, um, but, you know, back to the point about, like, how do we how do we move away from exploitation and towards a society based on sharing and cooperation well okay so maybe we would have to pass through a kind of stage where well the state kind of owned everything and would that state still pay you wages i mean would they still take the surplus uh, yeah they kind of have to right but would they how would they use the surplus would they would they use it to just enrich themselves and you know throw massive parties and oh look at how, right. how we're living right
0: or enrich a few plutocracy or something, yeah. So it's like a state capitalism.
2: They'd use it for the benefit, right? I mean, because, like, again, I, I talked about the social science statistics, right? The measures of well-being. I mean, how do you move the needle on that stuff? You have to massively invest in it, you know. Like, I mean, how do you how do you raise life expectancy? How do you lower infant mortality? Uh, how do you raise the quality of life? How do you abolish homelessness? You got to spend money, right? You got to spend the yeah, surplus. Yeah, absolutely. But you're, you do. you're spending it for so now. First of all, let's just recognize that you are taking it from the direct producer, right? And that is the Marxist definition of exploitation. But so that exploitation is taking place if the state owns everything. But mm-hmm. even if they use it for a very good purpose, right? To build hospitals and schools and you know, right. I mean, like the literacy rate under under the czar was like. right? I mean, so, you know, and and under the Soviets is 99.7%. I mean, they they poured resources into education, and it increased the quality of life dramatically. Um, And I think that's the thing that's been lost under our propaganda. But so, okay, so what would you call this system, right? This is clearly not communism, uh, but it's trying to get there, right? It's it's trying to take steps toward that. And so this is what, you know, the, the Marxist tradition, this is what they called socialism. He said, socialism is a, is a bridge state. It's, a, it's an intermediary. You know, we're trying to get someplace. And, and what that bridge is going to look like is, I mean, look, you know, I mean, we don't know exactly, but we are we are going to, we're going to try to reduce the worst mm-hmm. excesses of a class-based society. And yes, we have the dream, we have the goal in mind that we will one day... Uh, attain the state of classness. But what we do in the meantime, might look a lot like capitalism, right? I mean, because you see the same things, you see factories, you see industrialization, you know, and we we sort of associate that, like, okay, that's capitalism, but but is it, right? I mean, you you don't see some of the worst excesses, you don't see enslavement, you know, which grew up alongside capitalism, you don't see imperialism, Right. You know, you don't yeah. see the the conquest of other countries for the purpose of sucking out their resources and then systematically underdeveloping them. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, that's what I mean by imperialism, right? The, you don't see that. Uh, so see that. there is something very new happening here, but it's very contested because it is still very young historically, you know? Um, so right. what we, what's going on in the Soviet Union or the former Soviet Union, you know, what happened there? What is I mean, now Russia is, uh, you know, it's a an oligarchy. An oligarchy.
0: Yeah, it's a capitalist oligarchy.
2: Sad. Um, and they had to abandon most of their social spending. I mean, it the people's lives got dramatically worse with the.
0: Oh, 100%. I think that's irrefutably true. Uh, you know, so it's interesting to me that you, you make these juxtapositions because I see it clearly. There's, there's very large, uh, my family's from Malmo, Sweden. And I can say without equivocation that there's a massive difference between the way the United States handles its economy and the way the Swedish government handles the economy, right? They're very different. Uh, You know, obviously Sweden's more of a social democracy, uh, definitely has a lot of socialism going on there, but it it still has a mixed market, you know? So I don't know if there would be considered to be in that transitional stage that Marx talks about, but it's certainly more egalitarian than what we have here in the United States. I think that's indisputably true. And the things that make it so is, you know, Medicare, Medicare for all, actual 100% universal health care, free education. You can get a PhD without ever having to pay a dime. Just, that's just something that they put a premium on is having an education and all of these other things. It's just simply more egalitarian. I'm, um, You know, but part of that, too, I think, is cultural. The Swedish people haven't been spoon fed the diet of propaganda that America has. Like, America was set up for exploitation from day one. I mean, if you look at the history of the United States, you'll see very clearly that every argument against communism as being the bad guy, the Red Scare, the Russia hysteria, all of that stuff was based on stopping worker rights, whether it was unions, whether it was entering the Vietnam War. I mean, here you had a country that was trying to get out from under the thumb of colonial rule. That's what was really going on there, folks. So every time any American corporation feels threatened, that's when we kick into high gear with all of this rhetoric, right? And so this is clearly about supporting the platonomy. It's about supporting the wealth of the 1%. And it's coming at the expense of everybody else, um, and I just think we're—I just think it's more obvious to folks now because it's become so severe. I, we're at—we're at a place now where the income inequality e- is worse than it was in the '20s, and people are feeling that. You know, they—they—it's—it's it's affecting everybody. They feel it. They see it. So, um, is what it is. I want to ask you a question about Adam Smith. You brought up benevolence a little bit earlier in the conversation. And I think the concept of benevolence, it's an Enlightenment era concept, I think it's really important when we talk about uh, human nature. right? Are human beings self-serving or can they be benevolent? So Adam Smith to me is one of the most bastardized philosophers out there because people misunderstand um, a lot of his argumentation. They understand the invisible hand entirely. It's not Ayn Rand. It's not libertarian in the um, American definition sense. Uh, So Adam Smith talks about benevolence. And when he talks about the invisible hand, it's not this free market thing going on. He actually believed the landowners were benevolent and would never allow anybody to starve or need or want for anything. So we could have the conversation that that might be a little bit unrealistic. <laughs> but, it, it, but it's still very different from what people are told that it means. Um, and I think the other important aspect of Adam Smith is that he defined wealth in terms of labor, not gold. And previously, we had used gold as a metric to define wealth, right? But Adam Smith, no, that's not right. The the wealth is in terms of the labor, the productivity, right? So I sort of think like Adam Smith is not not really well-read in the sense that people just know this one thing about him and they don't read the rest of the book or he's intentionally also weaponized in the way the ideas of communism have been, right? But I do think that you can sort of make a... Uh, parallel argument about how these ideas coming up and in, into the Enlightenment up into the early 19th century were sort of changing the way people perceived um, political economy. Uh, so what are your thoughts on Adam Smith? And do you think there's better relationship with somebody like Karl Marx to Adam Smith versus Ayn Rand? Like, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Uh, um, well, I mean, Adam Smith is... is... You know, if you had to pick one figure that's, you know, the founder of modern economic theory, uh, you'd probably choose Smith. Um, there, were, there were people that came before, you know, Smith had uh, teachers, many of them French, you know, this group called the Physiocrats, uh, right. uh, Kinney and others. Um, so, you know, he's part of a, a tradition. I think people didn't break out their study of economics separately from the study of society. Yeah. Um, that's a good point. You know so that's that's a little bit new in in smith i mean smith is justly famous because his work is uh very logical uh it's very well thought out um he was quite well read about history um and you know the wealth of nations uh you know makes a very cogent argument that says well, look. Here's how societies become wealthy. I mean, he, he has a very brief forward in which he he says um, the reason that societies become rich is because of the productivity of labor. Uh, that's the that's the key. And what unlocks that? Well, um, he doesn't say this in the forward. But you know, what what clearly what unlocks it is the private property and competitive markets. I mean, that's that's his his view. And this right. led to the laissez-faire position. I mean. You know, Smith is writing at a time when feudalism is still quite dominant in in Europe. So, you know, he's, in that sense, very revolutionary. I mean, to say that we should trust the market is against the existing powers of the day, which are kings and the church, you know? So he's like, look, uh, we don't need to have central authorities manage the economy. We can, you know, we should open trade Uh, you know that's the laissez-faire position right the classical liberal position
0: right can i interrupt you there though he also makes because i always and i want your thoughts on this too um he makes this kind of bizarre argument about the home state theory though that people will have a natural tendency to stick with with in in this open market they're going to stick with their home state when it comes to trade which i always thought was a little strange um if you could elaborate on that that'd be great too
2: I think that where, where Smith, and we have to include, with Smith, it's good to include David Ricardo, right, who, who came a few decades later, and who developed and, and added some detail to uh, Smith's theory, um, and, you know, really kind of created this modern argument for free trade. Um, and, you know, it's an argument that appeals a lot more to the more developed and more industrialized country which of course England was at the time, because England's the birthplace of industrialization and capitalism, and mm-hmm. so the country that is a little bit further ahead tends to favor free trade more. I mean, they tend to have a lower unit cost, okay, and so I see
0: what you're you know
2: when the industries compete head to head, the one that has a lower unit cost can you know under can get has higher profits at the same price, right? So, you know, I I think that and this is what we see historically, right? The, the developed countries tend to favor free trade. The developing countries are like, well, uh, gosh, how the hell are we going to develop industry if we don't <laughs> put a few tariffs in place, right? I mean, exactly. if we don't shelter our indi- our infant industries. Now, you know, Smith and, and Ricardo are, are aware of this, you know, they're, they, they are careful students of, of international trade. Um, but, you know, what they're mostly reacting to is, is a, not a system of protected trade. They're they're reacting to a, the mercantilist system.
0: Yeah. So state sponsor monopoly and what have you.
2: Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, the mercantilist system was like the king gives a royal charter to you know their crony. And then right. that's the only person who can trade with India or whatever. Right. And, you know, or the only person that can produce in this or that area. And they've just handed out. I mean, that's the opposite of competitive markets. Right. So in, in uplifting competition, which both of these thinkers really do, um, they are very much going against the system of political patronage and corruption uh, of their day. And, you know, the, the kings and lords of the, of the day were quite against it. Uh, so, you know, they were, they were radical thinkers uh, of their time. Uh, if, if we look at their value theory, um, it's a little bit of a different issue because they're trying to say in, in, in discussing that they're trying to say, not just why do prices change, but why are prices what they are? You know, I mean, like, okay, Hey, it's $10. How do you know that? Well, cause that's what the tag says, right? <laughs> but you know, you don't need any theory to, to describe that, but why is it $10? Why not five? Why not 15? Is $10 a good price? Is that a ripoff? Is, I mean well now you're into value theory right why should why should it be the price that it that it is and you know smith ricardo marx i mean for hundreds of years even before benjamin franklin is one of these i have a whole video on this on my youtube channel okay. uh, on the labor theory of value which is quite old uh, you know their answer was look something has value uh, you know more or less value because of how much labor went into it you know the more labor goes into it the more value it's going to have and Marx offered a very interesting um, spin on that. You know, it wasn't, it's not unique to Marx to make that argument, but he made it in a different way. He refined it, developed it. And now when we think of the labor theory of value, we think of Marx uh, because of his contributions, but of course it's much older. Um, I think that political economy, which had that idea for hundreds of years, at some point rejected it because they really, I mean, in the hands of Marx, what Marx said, look, is yes, value comes from labor. And then the one who, you know, like he said, let's agree with John Locke, the great theorist of property, like, why should there be property? Well, because the one who produced it deserves to own it, you know? And, right, I mean, we think of Locke as being a pretty conservative thinker usually, but, you know, in the hands of Marx, it's like, Well, no, actually, Locke sounds pretty radical. Yeah, Yeah. the people who produced it should own it. Okay, well, it sounds like a communist, you know?
0: Right, no, absolutely. But I mean, the Enlightenment period was radical, right? So I think, I guess I I have my criticism to folks now is that don't, I, I agree with what you're saying. Don't apply Enlightenment thinking to the 21st century because it was a different environment. And what those guys were saying at the time was incredibly radical,
2: Right, because it's a very different context. I mean, they're yeah. they're talking at the, you know, time when feudalism is still the dominant system. I mean, that you know kings and lords are still the ones in right. charge of society. That's that's different from today.
0: Yeah, indeed. So, uh, interesting conversation, and it would be actually a good book. I'm going to recommend this to, if somebody would write, maybe you, a book on on the labor theory from the beginnings to the end, because. I don't think a lot of folks would think about putting these philosophers together, in a sense. But is, this is something that did bind them. And did they just you know, had similar beliefs, obviously, but also different spins on it. So it'd be interesting. Yeah. Um, so let's shift gears for a second. I want to talk about your book on uh, prison labor. Prison labor in the US and economic analysis is the name of the book. I, for me, I think involuntary servitude is really the apex of capitalist exploitation. Uh, In so many ways, you know, the 13th Amendment allowed these prisons to still force these folks to work. It was perfectly legal, uh, perfectly constitutional. And now we come into a time frame where because of neoliberal policy and and privatization, you have private prison labor because now these private corporations are going to profiteer even more off of it, which makes it more grotesque and egregious sort of the place we're at right now. So walk us through a little bit of your book, the high points and the most important aspects of your argument. Well, um,
2: you know, I became quite interested in, in prisons. Uh, I was in graduate school in the in 1990s. And, you know, this is a, a time where we were just kind of noticing like, oh my God, there's been a massive prison buildup. Uh, it wasn't really discussed uh, for a long time. I think, you know, there were different critiques of of prison uh, for decades before that, but I don't think, you know, there was a kind of moment where it all crystallized and people started going, oh my God, look at what's happened to the prison population. Look at, look at what's happened to the changes in these laws what, and what the results of that have been. Um, and so a minor kind of point that was part of that was uh, what about the, the labor that the inmates were doing? I mean, I think, you know, the mainstay of the critique was just that, you know, incarceration, is kind of exploding you know (laughs) like and so that's kind of like where that was my entree to the topic but then i started looking at this question and people were saying well the labor the process that that inmates are involved in is slavery and you know a lot of the critics were were on the left and you know i felt sympathetic to that argument um but i was like what do you mean by slavery you know like what makes something slavery versus Versus capitalism, or or feudalism, for that matter, right? How do you separate, uh, you know, these these systems or these, you know, how do you categorize that, right? And it turns out, you know, that's a major item of interest within Marxism, and you know, there's a lot of debate, you know, among class theorists of like, well, how do you how do you separate one class process from another, and uh, what are the what are the substantive kind of marks of it? I mean, there's disagreement among just you Know regular historians of slavery, uh, non Marxists that's what I mean by regular.
0: Do I, yeah, I was with you on that though. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, you know, I so that that's kind of what fascinated me, and what I found there is that people were making the charge, but they weren't really making a detailed argument, they weren't really making a case, uh, and so. The, those that were supporters of the regime of prison labor were easy, could easily come back and say, no, it's not. It's not slavery. Uh, you know, they get paid a wage. And so are like, okay, well, uh, or, or they'd say, well, there's a waiting list to be part of it. Um, how about that, right? That's not, that's not consistent with what we think of slavery, right? Uh, there's a waiting list to be enslaved, okay. Uh, so, well, how do we, you know, what is this, right? I mean, uh, they're certainly not free um, they, they certainly could be compelled to work, but are they being, is that, is that the critical thing? Is it compulsion? Is it, so these were kind of the things that were swirling around in my mind, you know, and so I spent, you know, several years working on it, thinking about it, uh, I, I took a trip, I realized sometime in this process that I'd never been in a prison, you know, like, I mean, this, this wasn't, it's not my background, right? I don't, I don't come from, you know, that's not my, my own personal experience. Uh, you know, um, so I was like, I need to actually see what's going on. I took a trip. Uh, I visited uh, dozens of, of different prisons, jails, uh, state, federal, you know, the different levels of uh, you know, incarceration uh, in the United States, and was able to observe, you know, here's some of the, the workshops and the f- fields and the places where production is taking place. Um, and, and then I did a lot of reading about the history of slavery and, you know, how do people conceive of this? And so that's, that's the argument that I make in the book as I look at, um, what is, what does it mean to say that something is capitalism or is slavery, you know, like, um, what separates these different kinds of production? Uh, what's a, what's a coherent argument that can, that can contain that? And, and I basically end up saying, um, you know, what we're interested, again, from a Marxist perspective, we're like, who produces, right? And they produce the, the necessary and the surplus, and then who takes the surplus? And what is the nature of the relationship? What, you know, there's different, I mean, every relationship's different, right? So we could say, I mean, how many different kinds of relationships have, have you had with your various employers over the years, right? I mean, each one probably its own thing, right? But Mm -hmm. there's something in common that they have, right, that would be different from other forms of organization, right? Different from serfdom, let's say, or, you know, different from enslavement. So, you know, what I end up arguing in in the book is that, yes, this is uh, best understood as a form of slavery. And the reason is because, well, first of all, someone else takes the surplus, but they do that under a specific Constellation of relationships uh, and those are created by the unique culture of prisons, the unique legal structure that surrounds that, including uh, the the use of force right or the potential for that, um, and the economic circumstances of prison, and all of those combine to, to create a, a situation that 's best thought of as slavery, despite these certain ways that it kind of stretch stretches our thinking, which is. Mm-hmm some inmates do receive payments. Now, is that enough to say that's not slavery? I mean, the thing is when we look at the history of slavery, we find the same thing actually occurred fairly frequently for slaves. So, it was not uncommon for slaves to get money payments. Does does that make it capitalism? If there's an exchange of money, right? Um so one of the things I look at is the ownership of labor power. You know, does Does somebody else own your ability to perform work in a given period of time? Right, right. right. And I see that as a kind of key marker uh, politically and economically, and it's very clear that that exists in prisons. Um, Now, you know, prisons try to use as little force as they can in order to get the thing to happen that they want to happen, right? I mean, so... It's not like every time you do anything, someone cracks you upside the head, right? I mean, that would be an insane way. I mean, you know, first of all, you'd spark a rebellion uh, in short order. Right. You, you try to get things to happen with a minimum amount of violence, even though the entire system, of course, is premised on it. You know, you're you're keeping people in a cage, you know, like why? Why would they not leave the cage? Well, because you'll shoot them if they try and leave the yeah. cage, right? I mean, it's so it's a total uh environment that is completely controlled by by physical coercion um and we can't like forget that right i mean like even if you don't use it all that often um which you know that's that's the case in prisons thank god right i mean there's there's relatively few shootings uh that occur uh, thank goodness you know um but we have to separate that right so okay you're in this totalizing environment what choices do you then make within the very limited range of options that you make? Does it does it benefit you to to sign up for employment? You know, as, which is what they call it, right? I call it enslavement, but does right. does, it, does it does that benefit you? Well, it turns out there's a huge incentive to do that, right? You can massively lower your sentence. Um, so it's like, okay, I'm going to keep you in this cage, but I'll keep you in it a shorter period of time if you do this. Uh, well, that's a pretty strong inducement. And it's hard to say then that it's voluntary, right? I mean, it's, right. that really stretches the notion of like, what is voluntary, right? Indeed. Um, So, and then I look at the culture, right? The culture of prisons. And, you know, this is one of the things that a lot of theorists of slavery have argued, which is that the slave is put in a different category in terms of meaning, in terms of how do we think about what is a slave, right? A Mm -hmm. slave is a person who is, who lacks honor right that's the roman notion who who cannot be trusted who who i mean the romans wouldn't accept your testimony in a court if if you were a slave unless you were tortured then then it was okay right i mean that was so there's a dehumanization here there's a there's an objectification and that's a very important historical component of slavery now does that take place in prisons you know i argue that it does because you know, if, if you ever say like, look at this appalling treatment of inmates, somebody is going to say at some point, well, they're criminals, right? (laughs) Criminal is a category which allows for almost anything to happen, right? There's a, well, they're, you know, the, and then, you know, we know that they're violent, savages, animals, you know, I mean, like, wow, the, the amount of stereotyping and, um, you know, uh, the amount of, of just objectification of that, right, put to, to create a different and lower category of beingness for that individual or that, that group of individuals, right, um, that doesn't really matter, uh, that nothing else matters really beyond that. So this is kind of like the, in, in a nutshell, my, my argument, right, we have these cultural, political, and then there's economic reasons uh, to favor this enslavement as well. Um, that, that it does provide inmates with a source of income, um, uh, that, uh, um, that also that they receive a, a kind of form of welfare uh, in, in prisons, right? They get food, clothing, shelter. They get a lot of their, their needs met. Um, they don't get an income, right? So, okay, you, can, you, ha- you have all these forms of welfare which take care of you whether you work or not. But if you do it, you get a shorter sentence, you, you get uh, money income, which most people need, right? Even, even in, inside. Um, uh, and of course there is the ever present shadow of physical force that can be used. So all of these things combine to produce a relationship, which I think is best understood as, as a form of slavery.
0: I 100% agree with you. Um, two things that also come to mind, and I'm curious on your thoughts on this, uh, you know, the other thing that happened was it incentivized longer prison terms. Right. So even though and then we had several in- instances where judges were actually being bribed by these private prison corporations to do just that. And, and they were taking the bribes and, and doing this. this is well documented. So they incentivized longer prison terms and also innocent folks were locked up. They might not have been. So those two things are, I think, absolutely true. So even though they're turning around and saying, we're going to shorten your prison term if you do this, I don't know that it offsets this other thing when people make that argument. And the other thing that happened that I think is pretty appalling is companies like Victoria's Secret comes to mind. They got contracts with these private prison corporations. So they would pay the involuntary slaver to the prisoners, what, $0.06, $0.12 an hour. So now not only are they getting this insane deal on the laborers, really six, 12 cents an hour, that's what you're going to pay these folks. You're also removing a good paying job from the rest of the economy. So these would would have been people that might have been making 15, $16 an hour in the real world. That job's gone on top of it. So it it just, there's the grotesque, uh, just these things are just so grotesque to me. I mean, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, you know, it, it, that's, that's all true. I mean, it's, it's kind of, we have to understand it like in its context, you know, its historical context is, um, that prisons are actually a relatively new institution mm-hmm. in society period. Right. I mean, like we didn't really have incarceration, very much under the feudal era, right. In Europe, for example, right. Which is where, you know, that's the history, you know, not so much of this country, but that's our kind of inherited history. Right. right. Um, the punishments of feudal Europe were corporal punishments, right? I mean, they're they're big fans of drawing and quartering and hangings and you know things like this, right? Um, cut off a hand, or you know, I mean, there's there's all kinds of brutal punishments from the feudal era, but these are corporate punishment. These are not um, th- these are not uh, you know incarceration. Incarceration basically is not used at all, uh, you know, except for a few minor cases. I mean, like. You know uh, soldiers of opposing armies occasionally you know were held and whatever but you know it, it's it's um it's not mass incarceration doesn't have a long history it doesn't go back much before the mid-1800s so what was happening at that time right well i mean you know you have the abolition of slavery in the united states right and and this coincides with the rise of incarceration and these New scientific ideas about, oh well, we can incarcerate people. And first of all, this is much less brutal than than chopping your hand or foot off or something, right? Right. And and secondly, we can rehabilitate you and you can be part of society. And, you know, they had these notions that labor would be a part of that. Uh that labor would make you a better person. Um, and they had an interesting thing which they said, you know. The, the best form of labor is a kind of abstract form of it, you know? Uh, and so they had this thing. It was like you had to turn this crank a certain number of times, right? Yeah. And that was your allotment, you know? And so, and by the way, this is why prison guards are sometimes called screws.
0: Uh, no. That's kind of a okay. prison
2: slang, right? Because it's like you had to turn this screw, you know, in order to, you know, meet your quota and whatever, or you had to walk the endless staircase. I mean, this is like, it looked kind of like nineteenth-century uh, versions of exercise equipment, you know.
1: Right.
2: Uh, and uh, because it was meant to be like, oh, this this is just rehabilitative labor. Uh, so the notion that labor is going to like make you a better person is is kind of mingled into mm-hmm. this, right? Um, but you know, I, I know I'm getting a little bit off field from the, the question you asked, right? which is That's like. All right. What about private corporations exploiting us? Well, because
0: it added well, this element of profiteering, obviously, that didn't exist with what you're talking about right now.
2: Right. Well, so what what changed, you know, is that states started getting involved and in saying, let's not do abstract labor. Let's do labor that's actually productive. You know, let's have the inmates, you know, build a road, right? And the immediate problem that they confronted was that the existing capitalist contractors who were building the road before were like, what the hell is this? You're going to have prisoners do this? And what about us? You used to give us the contract, you know, and now we, now we have to compete with slaves. So, you know, the very first people that made the argument that prison labor was slavery were capitalists, you know, like they were like, because they, they wanted the contract, right? Right. They, they, they didn't like the idea that they'd compete with, I mean, they can't possibly pay anyone as low wages uh, as, as an inmate, right? So, I mean, the, the, initially the inmates didn't receive anything, right? They just there was never any payment. You know, these these early the convict leasing and whatever of the 19th century, um, these inmates didn't get paid. They they had to work. Everyone, you know, the the work was universal. You know, right. everyone worked. But eventually, over time, that got restricted because you know, again, capitalists complained. And the other big player was labor unions. You know, labor unions. You know, they, they made a very similar argument, as you just mentioned, which is, you know, you're taking away our jobs. And so prison labor was restricted. You know, they, they put laws and rules on it, regulations, which said you cannot, one of the big ones was to say you can't have interstate commerce of prison-produced commodities. So it's like, okay, well, that's quite a limitation. It has to be only something that's used by the state. Um, now, the state buys a lot of goods and services, so it, it left somewhat of a door open. Yeah. But what we saw is that prison labor went through this decline. And so, you know, up until that started to get reversed in the late seventies, uh, some of these laws started to be overturned or changed. And that kind of led to a an increase. But where we are now is actually nowhere near where we were historically when you had, you know, nearly a hundred percent, you had like kind of high nineties. There's always a few inmates that for whatever reason can't or aren't working. But uh, you know, very close to 100% uh, enslavement back in those days. Now it's much less. But that's only because these forces converged, which, which reduced it, right? That's, it's not like some kind of, you know, because it's beneficent on the patent, right. fa- you know, like, <laughs> from the prison authorities. So, you know, as part of this, they allowed for, for private corporations to get involved. And, um, And, and some took advantage of that, right? They, they were afraid of it because they didn't like, okay, they might get criticized. They might get into problems with their unions, but with unions being much, much weaker, uh, now than they were, you know, in the early 20th century, they don't have that as much of a concern, but they still have a kind of PR concern, which is like, you know, are they going to be seen as doing something bad, something brutally exploitative, um, they don't like negative PR, you know, they don't want to be singled out. So, you know, that's still kind of a question. And there have been some campaigns which have singled out, you know, certain, you know, I mean, like, there was actually just one that came this year that was about Mike Bloomberg, his, his right. campaign. And then somebody found out that his campaign was using was using
0: made, prison labor. That's and and right. To calls, make right? And
2: people. Yeah, and people were like, this bastard is using slave labor to make his call, right? So, it, you know, it's actually, call centers is one of the things, it's one of the services that, uh, that's offered, and, you know, that makes sense in a captive environment, right? I mean, somebody could call from anywhere. One of the issues around call centers is um, people don't like it when the person ha- it sounds not American. They, you know, Americans don't like that, right? So right. it's like, okay, well, here you have Americans. They speak good English, right? um and you know that's that's different from using call centers in say india right i mean like uh yeah. you know right. indians also speak english but they speak british english t- typically right or or british influenced uh you know they have their own kind of version of english there right so you know that's that's somewhat of an issue or uh you know so there's demand for for that kind of labor in in prisons but you know it also just shows it's a cautionary tale for corporations because it shows there's some discomfort here, you know, there's a, there's a legacy of, of, you know, like if you say, well, it's the slavery going on in prisons, a lot of people are going to be, you know, okay, you don't have to, you know, I don't have to read your whole book for you to convince me, right? I yeah, I I agree, right? So there's some resonance. It's not a new idea to us, you know, Um, it's, it's not that hard to make the case. Now, some people will argue against it, right? Some, like I said, I, and I address some of those criticisms in the book, you know, I, that's why I go to the length that I do to establish the argument because I don't think it's enough to just make a charge. Right. I, I, I'm like, you know, I'm into, you know, making the case in a kind of airtight (laughs) manner if I can. Right. Um, I mean, you know, that's me, right. That's, that's what I, what I focused on in that, in that book.
0: Excellent. So if people want to buy your book, where can they buy it?
2: Uh, It's on Amazon. It's published by, by Rutledge. Uh, There's a, there's a hardcover, or paperback. There's even a Kindle edition. Um, if 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 you go and check it out, uh, I have to apologize. It's kind of highly priced. I had nothing to do with that decision. That's completely. It's an academic
0: book. They're oh, always more expensive.
2: I know, I know, and that's that's a, a Which lame is thing. So, yeah, borrow it from your library if you can. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of libraries have it. Uh, they they rent the ebook version. Uh, my library at RCC has it. Uh, so you know, you do it that way. Um, I, I have a video on it on YouTube that's, that's free to everybody. If you, if you want to look at it that way, and rather than. Where, what
0: books, is your channel?
2: It's, uh, it's youtube.com slash my name, which is Asetar Bear.
0: And are you, are you writing any books now? What are you working on?
2: Well, you know, I, I teach at, at a community college, right. Right, Riverside Community College, Riverside City College. Uh, and, you know, our, our teaching workload is kind of high, but I am working on a, a a textbook, uh, like an an introductory economics textbook. I haven't had a huge amount of time to work on it because we've had to, you know, put all of our stuff online, you know, because of the pandemic. And so mostly I've had to kind of shelve that and just work on my, I I put all my lectures on YouTube and I'm still kind of adding to them and, and so on. And so, you know, people who want to kind of get my perspective on economic theory can, can check that out. I teach the micro and macro and political economy. And, you know, I have a whole set of lectures, um, you know, they're meant for an academic environment. So these are not short videos. They're, you know, half an hour, an hour long. Um, I'm going to, I'll make some shorter ones perhaps as, as I go along, but, uh, these are more academic in the sense of like, you know, that they, they have a whole, uh, I, I know it'd probably be more popular if I did a three-minute
0: video. <laughs> <I have> <laughs> no, but you know, what? I I watched your video on the. This is how I found you. I watched your video on the history of the Soviet Union, and it was very informative. Even it, it, I didn't think it was too long. But again, I'm also come from that academic environment. But I thought it was really well done. I think you made the information very accessible, um, and Thank it you. does sort of differentiate between a lot of the propaganda that's put out there. You know, which I think is important.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the hope is always with, with these educational efforts that, that you know, people think about things in a new way. You know, I, I don't, I, I'm, my interest is not like, you know, oh, let me smash all opposition to my manner of thinking. I mean, it's it's more like, you know, let's raise the level of discourse, you know, let's, let's think, you know, perhaps I convince you, perhaps not. I mean, you see, obviously, I have my own opinion about this stuff, but, you know, I think it's more like you know, if, if we are to, to get to a better place socially and economically, we have to do that together, right? I mean, and, and when you, you know, when you work together with others, you compromise, you know, you, right. you come yeah. to a, you know, so I might have an opinion that, you know, influences others. I, we might end up in a place that I don't even like all that much, right? Because it's, it's so, you know, far from where, how far I'd like to go or something.